9.08 is a good time to, to get started. Um, if you will, take your Bibles and let's open them to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. And I want to just kind of, you know, as we would just launch our continued talk of uh, the history of the Christian church, church history, uh, I just want to call your attention to, to what Paul says here about the Scriptures. Uh, in Romans 15, four, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And here Paul's referencing the Old Testament, uh, the, the, the record of Israel, the story of Israel, the history of Israel, uh, God's faithfulness, the prophets, the writings, uh, the poetry. Um, but there's an important point that he makes here is that the things of old are for our good, for our instruction and through endurance, through perseverance, and encouragement of the scriptures that there is hope. And now the study of church history is not up there next to the scriptures. But the principle here that, that Paul considers is that the things that have occurred are worth learning about. One, that we do not repeat them. And two, that we do not forget them. I think oftentimes, and as we're getting up in the you know, right now in the pre-Reformation and next week when we begin the Reformation, I think there's a, there's a forgotten um, reality uh, that we are Protestant. There, there's a, there's a, uh, an unhealthy uh, ecumenical attitude where, you know, we kind of want to just bring everything together. And while we want to be nice and we want to be kind, there are things and there are truths that we, in the hills that we die on. Uh, and we are distinctly Protestant Christians. We are the first protesters. Uh, and we stand in that line. And so I, I just think, you know, that's one thing that I, I would like to see a recovery of, an understanding of, of our heritage, where we come from. And it's not that we subscribe to a man or a system, but the reformers, is, again, I'm getting a week ahead of myself, but the reformers were distinctly biblical. And so uh, did they have all things right? No. And so, the, again, we don't follow a person, um, but we follow in Paul's words that he would tell the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. And so, uh, again, for, for our encouragement, as we look on the past of church history, it is for our instruction. It's not just for a wealth of knowledge, you know, that, oh, we know something, but that it's knowledge applied. It, it's the whole of the Christian life, right? We read the scriptures, not just to know the scriptures. Yes, it is not less than knowing the scriptures, but we know the scriptures so that we would apply the scriptures. That's what we would get in Psalm 119, that uh, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So uh, we want to, even the study of church history, we want to learn and take that knowledge and apply it. And so the framework that I would like for us, you know, as we would get through whatever lessons we would talk about, think in terms of these three words, for the church. 
church history for the church. And so us being the church, the gathering, the called out ones, ecclesia, uh, the gathering of those that have been called by Christ, think in terms of, as we have, as we are instructed, uh, how can I apply this? How can this apply into my life and for the, the, the advancement of the church in the 21st century? We are in the long line of godly men and women, and we are, God has chosen in his sovereignty and kind providence towards us to place us in church history. We are in present day church history. But if Christ tarries 100, 200 years from now, we are living in an era that someone just like me 200 years from now will be talking about our time. And so uh, it's good to look back so that we can be living uh, faithfully in the present. So there is my introduction for this morning. Um, And I thought, well, besides an introduction, on a Sunday morning, what is a good way to start a Sunday morning? And so I decided as we will look at the late Middle Ages. Wait a minute here. This is not where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be on slide seven. Okay, yes, this is, I'm going to jump real quick here. Because we did this, we covered this. There will be a... Ah, here we go. This is where we need to start. All right, very good. So that was all the review that we went through. That was the fastest review possible. And that's wonderful because on a Sunday morning, it's time for quizzes. All right, so are you guys ready? I just want to know if, if, you know, I just want to get a poll. You know, are you listening? So first quiz, what are the five ways in which Thomas Aquinas used to prove the existence of God? We talked about it last week. Do you remember? Oh, I'm, I'm, listen, I won't, wouldn't even remember if I didn't have the answers in front of me, but yes, first cause, will you, yes, we have discipled you for years, you are my crown jewel. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I didn't expect you to know that. Uh, I, listen, I, my brain is fuzzy this morning, um, it was, I had a blessing of being in Atlanta for the last three or four days uh, at, a, at a conference and uh, flying in last night uh, late and uh, I'm not making excuses. Marley uh, had a tough time while I was gone. So uh, give her a hug when I come in around midnight and uh, that excites her, wakes her up and uh, we needed to have a daddy daughter sleepover downstairs last night and she spent a good quarter of an hour uh, talking to me about how she's going to become a professional skateboarder. And so that was my evening leading up. So I figured, let's get our brains working with a quiz. So that, that being said, we'll pull back the curtain. All right, we're going to play a little game or a quiz of 14th century true and false. So I have a statement for you, and you will let me know uh, if this is true or false. I want to test and understand what your understanding of the 14th century was. Okay, so ready? In the 14th century, true or false, the first world history book was produced. What would we say? Is this true or is this false? False. We got a false here. True? Undecided? Of course we're purely guessing here. 
there might be one or two that you know, but I just spent the week finding facts. The answer is actually true. In 1311, Rashid Eddin of Persia published the Great Universal History. Uh, so, if you are at all interested in world history in the 14th century, be sure to find that book. I doubt it's in print anywhere. But, true, history, um, the first world history book was printed. All right, second, true or false, soccer was invented. Is this, is this true or is this false in the 14th century? True? All right, we got one for True? True? False? Well, you can only be one or the other, right? Oh, okay. All right. Yes, yes, yes. All right. So, so the, the, I call it soccer because we're across the pond here. Oh, yeah, but we mean, we mean uh, football Americano, right? Um, or that's American football. I meant soccer. Yes, real football. The answer is false. But in 1314, England banned soccer because they thought it was too violent. They thought it was too violent. In fact, soccer began in the ninth century in an English town, and they began to play soccer uh, by kicking around pigs' bladders. Yes, yes. The earliest one I found was the ninth century, but it actually could go back even further because um, there's something maybe in the 3rd century B.C. with China and they were kicking things. And I guess it's just, you know, it's in human nature. If something's on the ground, kick it. And so however they invented the game, um, but yes, there was a name for it as well in uh, early China. All right, next question. Oh, it's true. Did you know that? That the Black Death, the plague ravished Europe... Oh, yeah, kicking the ball was in 206. That's what I, uh, B.C. But Black Death, true. 1314, the plague lasted three years, and 25 million Europeans died. One-third of all of Europe died because of the Black Plague. Uh, that means COVID has nothing on the Black Plague and there is a big difference there. Um, so, no, I don't know if that's a, but. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. During that time. That's right. That's right. And that's. So, as we talk about for the church, right? We look back on history. What did the church do? The church has endured pandemics and uh, throughout, throughout the centuries. Um, the actually early Christians developed immunities because they went in, in in the first few centuries. And they cared. They didn't run. They didn't quarantine. Um, so, yeah, the church throughout history. Now, not, I would say let's not tempt uh, providence or put the Lord our God to the test, but yeah, let's be responsive and responsible and show the world that we care. All right, a couple more. Uh, 14th century, true or false? Here we go. The first English translations of the Bible were completed in the 14th century. True or false? True? 
There's a lot of undecideds this morning. Actually, it's false. Aldham, Bishop of Sherborne, translated the Psalms in the 7th century. Alfred the Great had the Bible translated in the 9th century. Now, I kind of wanted to trick you up on this question because we would have thinking John Wycliffe. Wycliffe, the Bible translator. Um, he begins his translation from the Vulgate, and he completes it uh, in 81. No, actually, Wycliffe is not martyred, but he, he is desecrated. And we will get into him today. So we're going to, but they, they dig up his ashes. They dig up his bones and they burn him. So Wycliffe, he's persecuted, but does not get martyred, actually. And it's an interesting what they do to him. We'll get to that today. Y- yes, ma'am. What's that? So the Vulgate is, is uh, Jerome's translation. So Jerome took the, the Greek manuscripts that were present at the time, and he writes a Bible, he writes the whole, translates the whole Bible into Latin. And this becomes the standard Bible for a thousand years. No, 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 no. So, so this is from like roughly the 5th century to the 15th century. Uh, the church used, uh, Greek was kind of lost they, the, the, you know, the, the, the manuscripts were, uh, they weren't teaching Greek as much anymore. Only certain people knew how to read actual um, uh, original manuscripts. And so Jerome's translation becomes the gold standard, um, so to speak, or the most used. And so anybody that would go to a seminary or they were being trained for the ministry, they were trained in the Latin Bible. And so the, the, the emphasis that I'm wanting to make there is that Wycliffe makes a translation from a translation. And it's, a, it's about another 150 years uh, before um, the Greek starts to surface again. But that has to do with the Reformation. So I, I don't want to lay out everything right now because this builds up. Shirley, you had a question. Or your hand up. The what version? I, well... I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure on that. I just, I know that, um, yeah, Jerome's translation was, was the most used because Latin was the, was the common language there. Um, and there's a precedent for translations of Bibles, um, that it is good to have translations in the, um, what we'd say, the vulgar tongue, or, uh, and that doesn't mean a bad tongue, it means the native language, or the common language. That's where, that's where I, I'm, I'm a firm believer and comfortable with modern English translations, because it's the language we speak of the day. Coney Greek, which is the, which is the, um, the language that the, that the New Testament is written in is the common Greek language. It's not the lofty Greek language. Um, it was the one that the, from, the, from the littlest to the oldest would be able to understand. It was the language of commerce. It was the language spoken in the marketplace. And so Matthew and Mark and, and, and Luke, they, they write in the common tongue um, so that the common man would understand. So, yes, that's the Vulgate, Wycliffe. And, and so really, in the, in, the, in the life of Wycliffe, uh, translating from Latin, the, the Vulgate, was a, was a no-no. Don't do this, you know, because it would be bad if people had the Bible in their own language because they would, they don't know how to handle it. That's what the church would say to him. Um, 
Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, when you think about that, um, the attitude was, this is what the Bible says, and you can't check me on that. Right, and so what we and in, in in my my philosophy of ministry, my desire uh, when teaching the Bible is not to tell God's people necessarily this is what the Bible says, but more to show you that you would see this is what the Bible says instead of me just telling. That's why it's important that you know we open our Bibles, we look to as as the whatever the pastor or whoever's teaching from the word of God that we read along so that you would see the meaning instead of just you know taking my word for it. I can be wrong. Um, so yes, good question, Vulgate. Um, the Canterbury Tales are written. I gave you guys enough time to Google that one, right? So you, you said that with conviction. Yes, are you sure? True. You are, you are correct. And Nathan, I assumed you would have known this one, right? Of course. You probably had the date. Uh, no, I oh, okay. 13, 1387, Chaucer publishes the Canterbury Tales. 600 years later, I was born. <laughs> All right. So good job with True and False. You guys got about a 50. Yes. All right, here we go. How about did you know? So now I'll just rifle off a few facts for you here from the 15th century. Because I want us to know what's going on in the world at this time, too. Because that helps us to know the climate, the climate of the church. In the 15th century, did you know that in the year 1400, this one's for you, Brian, that golf balls were invented? I like golf, but uh, I think Brian knew that. <laughs> also... The spinet, a small piano, was invented. I think I got a picture of it here. I don't know if that's actually the one um, from 1400. I don't think pictures were in color back then. Um, But something along those lines. That kind of helped me to think, oh, that's what the small piano looked like. We know this one, 1450, Gutenberg prints the Bible. This is so important. 87, the Spanish Inquisition begins. And Russia becomes an independent nation in 1480. I think it was Ivan the Great, maybe the terrible, I think it was the Great um, that uh, helped Russia to become an independent nation. Okay, and a couple more here, and then we'll get into considering Wyclef. Um, in 1487, bell chimes are invented. Interesting. And here's a very, I'm kind of going in, in, in the order of dates. Something around this time happened that was very important to our history. What happened in the late 15th century? Uh, we're getting there close. It's a little bit later than that. But something before that significant happens. Yes, Columbus sails the ocean blue. 
The Americas are discovered, at least from the, in the, uh, from the European mind. Uh, okay. Great. And so the Americas are on the map now. And all the flat earthers disappeared. So, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, and the Inquisition was, was targeted at the Jews. So, uh, and this event with Columbus opens up trade uh, and the discovery of, of spice, uh, different spices and resources. And just remember this because uh, there's an interesting fact that I don't want to give it away, but um, in the 16th century, uh, something very important lands in Europe that had not been there before. But we'll consider that next week. Um, also interesting for some of you, uh, 1494, the Scots make whiskey. This it was an interesting uh, fact here um, that whiskey in Scotland was first, uh, at least in, in record, um, made in 1494. Uh, there's a tax record from this event that reads, eight balls of, mart to fr- of malt to Friar John Cor, wherewith to make aqua vitae. Um, so Friar John produces 1,500 bottles from these eight balls of mart of this incredibly potent beverage. And so um, it's interesting to track the history of Scotland from this point on. So whiskey comes on the scene. 1499, Anne of Brittany begins a custom by wearing a white wedding dress. Hmm. This occurs today. And that is exactly the dress that she wore. Not really. Yes, yes it was. But that's a custom that began in the late 15th century that we still recognize and do today. So where did the white wedding dress come from? Anne of Brittany. All right. Enough of our facts. Let's talk about this man, John Wycliffe or Wycliffe. He is a very important character in church history. He is a name worth knowing about. What do we know about John Wycliffe or Wycliffe? He carries a stick. Yes. Excuse me. I just needed to grab... My tablet here. Um, what was that? I heard something else. Trans- translates the Bible into English. Yes, very much so. He is um, timeline. You know, Luther is 1517. You could see here in the, the, the birth and death of, of Wycliffe, he is certainly uh, predates Luther. Uh, Interesting facts, and we brought this up last week, but he's been given after his death. Historians 
have looked back on him and given him the name, the morning star of the Reformation. It's helpful to think of John Wycliffe as the great or, yeah, great grandfather of the Reformation. He is a forerunner, as it were, to to what would take place. Or consider it kind of like a set of dominoes. There's John Wycliffe, and then there's Jan Hus, or John Huss, and then there's Luther. And so, really, the purpose of, of considering him and some of the events that have transpired is that we under, to understand that when the Reformation comes on the scene, it's not out of nowhere. There's momentum building up to this. It's not Luther nailing 95 theses and just, you know, boom, everything changes. No, there's there's many things along the path that are building up to this one big moment. And really, there were reformers before Luther, and there there are other people that are teaching Luther's teaching before Luther's teaching it. And so, again, Wycliffe is one of the first and forerunners here. Uh, born in Yorkshire, England. Uh, the, the dates that they're born are, are roughly, you know, you, go like, you have to go look at the, the way that they dated people is they would consider baptism records. Um, and so some, some people say 24 he was born. Some say in 30. We'll say 30 just because it ends in a zero. But roughly around that time, born in England. And he's a scholar and he's a teacher at Oxford. He is a very important figure, as I have said. Um, There's not much information concerning his childhood, um, but what we do know about him and his documentation of his life picks up when he becomes a a student and then a teacher at Oxford. He became a fellow at Merton, Merton College at Oxford in 1356. Uh, Wycliffe was ordained and installed as a parish priest in Lincolnshire. And in 1366, he was appointed as one of the king's chaplains. Uh, so he, he, he ran in certain circles, as, as it were. Um, he was a preacher. He was a scholar. He received his doctor of theology in 1372. He was a well-learned man. And he was a champion of what we would call sola scriptura. When I say sola scriptura, what does that mean? Scripture alone. Now, you will never find in any of Wycliffe's writings that term. He, that term becomes uh, the battle cry of the Reformation. But in principle and in practice, this was something that he lived out. Wycliffe believed in the authority of the scripture. This is very important because, as we would see concerning his life, for Wycliffe to say that the Bible is the supreme authority, it is the rule and, uh, and that, that governs life, at that very moment saying that, you are also saying the Pope is not. It is like in the first century when, when the first century believers would cry out, Jesus is Lord. That statement is saying, Jesus is king, Caesar is not. It's an allegiance thing. So when Wycliffe champions the supreme and the absolute authority of Scripture, he is saying that the Bible, the word of God, rises above any human institution or authority. And so he is a champion of this. So he's looking, and one of his... his, 
as a result of this authority that he understands the Bible to hold, the word of God, he rejects papal authority. He rejects, and and he becomes a bit more outspoken as he starts to get older in his life. As he starts to grow in his convictions, um, he becomes louder and louder, rejecting papal authority. And so, as, as, as uh, Wycliffe would uh, use his pulpit, he would preach openly against the, pulp, uh, against the Pope. And in one of his tracts, he, he wrote concerning the Pope these words, quote, He is the Antichrist, the proud worldly priest of Rome, and the most cursed of clippers and cut purses. Sounds like a, an angry way for an old Englishman to refer to the Pope. Um, but he was very much, he, he saw the system that had been created in Rome. Um, and he saw the extent of papal authority. And he's saying, this is, this is reaching way too far. This is too much where the Pope, what the Pope says is dogma. Is, 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 is written down and it is a doctrine and it is tradition and scripture and the Pope is the head of tradition and scripture really just kind of sits underneath of what the Pope declares. And Wycliffe is thinking, this is not true. This is not, this is not right. And so he becomes uh, a rejecter and uses his platform. Now Wycliffe is loved he is respected. He is, and so for a time there in Oxford and in England, he's, he's, he's building up this momentum, this following, uh, as it were. And he's given freedom to speak as he would. Um, but it would only last a certain amount of time. Wycliffe would continue to preach against the papacy, and it came to a point where his voice was so heard that the Pope took notice of him and writes against him and has him placed in prison. It was Pope Gregory XI. He issues five papal bulls, these writings, these statements against Wycliffe, and ordered that he be placed in prison. So here's an, here's an example that the Pope at this time has the authority to put people in prison. So he's not, this is not unheard of for, for Wycliffe to start rejecting this. That the Pope has way overstepped his boundaries. Yes. Mm-hmm. That they lost. Yes. Yeah, that's an interesting, and that, that, that would be worth considering and tracking there. As uh, When you get to the, to the 70s, the 1370s, and the later parts of the 1370s, uh, Wycliffe starts losing his kind of insulation around him. As, yes, yes, he was protected. Um, and so if you remember, one of the key points that we talked about last week was at the Fourth Lateran Council. In 1215, the Catholic Church makes transubstantiation, the, the, 
the, the idea that the, the bread and the wine become the literal body and blood of Jesus, that they are actually drinking and eating Christ. His presence is, is completely, completely there in the, what they call the Eucharist. Um, and this is another point where Wycliffe says, I, don't, I can't see that in the Bible, you know, where Jesus in John 6 says, I am, uh, you know, this is my body. We understand that, again, to be uh, hyperbole. And Wycliffe rightly understood that. And so he rejects transubstantiation. He says, it can't be this way. And he argues, I don't have it with me uh, on another paper that I had written on him, but he argues that Christ cannot be in the meal and seated at the right hand of the Father. And so if he is seated, and he's not arguing that Christ is not omniscient or omnipresent, but he's saying Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he is not in what you are eating. He says that when you take the bread, it tastes like bread. It goes down like bread. It comes out as bread digested. When you drink the cup, which they weren't even allowed to drink, but when the cup was drunk, it was wine. It tasted like wine. It went down like wine, and it came out like wine. And he says, nothing happens. And you missed the whole point of the, of, of, of the, of the, of the mysticism that, that was added to uh, the Lord's Supper. And so he becomes outspoken here. So he's rejecting papal authority, and he, along with many others in the church at the time, rejected the, the, the universal doctrine that was, was said, this is what the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist is. And with these two things, he lights the match. The match has been lit, and he starts writing. And the key to the Reformation is that men wrote. There have been movements throughout history that kind of come up and come down. Remember what Gamaliel says in, in Acts chapter, uh, I believe, 4 or 5, when, when the apostles are brought in, and Gamaliel says, hey, wait a minute. If this is from God, you be careful with these men. But you remember how this other guy came and it came up, and it lasted for a little while, and then he died, and it fizzled out? He says, if it's not of God, it's just going to fizzle. And so, but like that movement that Gamaliel speaks about, uh, any, any significant movement in the church has always occurred because men wrote. Writing is important. We've seen um, in our, in the last uh, century, uh, we've seen the rise and fall of fundamentalism in the church. Uh, a, a movement that, that, that began um, as, as, uh, combating against theological liberalism. And it was in the early 1900s that people from multiple denominations, Presbyterians, Baptists, uh, convictional people, they came together uh, and they were known as fundamentalists. We agree on the fundamentals. Um, we would lay aside maybe our differences on baptism, uh, church membership, things like that. But what, and so they unified together and they identified, we are, these are what make us fundamentals, fundamentalists. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe, uh, you know, in the Trinity. We believe in these things where there was a, there was a progressive liberal, and I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking inside of uh, uh, the church and, and theology, a progressive uh, liberal theology that says, well, we don't believe in the inspiration of Scripture. We don't believe in the inerrancy. You know, Genesis 1 through 11 is just a myth. And the Bible is true starting in Genesis 12, and we just need a myth of origins. And so they come together. Well, the thing 
is, uh, and if any of you had spent any time in fundamentalist churches, uh, there wasn't a significant amount of writing that was done in, in the fundamentalist movement, and it became rules. It just kind of became a system of the do's and the don'ts. And in the last 20 years, we have seen the decline of, of fundamentalism because of lack of writing. Bring that all the way back. John Wycliffe, he writes. And because he writes, his legacy goes far beyond him. So he rejects papal authority. He rejects transubstantiation. And this is one of the big reasons why we know him. Is that he believed the Bible should be understood and read by everyone in their own language. Do you, have, do, you, do you guys have Bibles? Could you just hold up your Bible if you have one with you? you? You're holding an English Bible and an iPhone. Yeah. But we have this because of the conviction of people that have come before us. We have these translations. We have a Bible, an English Bible in our own vernacular because God burdened the hearts of people to say, no, we must. We must rescue the Bible from the bondage of the church, and we need to put it in the hands of the church. And let's take it from the authority of the church and actually give the Bible to the church. Remember, the church is not the institution. The church is the people. It is the gathering of the called out ones. And so Wycliffe has this, it's not a novel idea, but it's revolutionary when you start putting all three of these things together. Reject the papacy. Reject the doctrine of transubstantiation. And advocate for the Bible in your own vernacular, your own language. But it's not just that he says these things and he's got his hobby horse and these are the things that he doesn't like. He does something about it. As we, had, as we, in our facts, he begins the translation work. Today, one of the uh, largest Bible translation agencies, missions work, it's called the Wycliffe Bible Translators. Tom and Libby Willett, they were missionaries that we supported for, from, from start to finish. And they, what's that? And they still work as volunteers, but we've supported people. And so there is a push because there's a desire that every nation and every tribe and every tongue and every language get the gospel. And that comes through, 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 through uh, Wycliffe, who is a champion of this and does something about it. And so he begins his translation. Uh, it's not a good translation I don't recommend reading Wycliffe's translation as he translates from a translation. And, but it's, it's a good thought that he does. It's, it's not the most accurate. Um, but nonetheless, he does a good pioneering job here. And he dies in 1384. He had suffered a little bit of persecution, a little bit of imprisonment um, for his views, short stays, because he's still well-loved within England. So he does have his insulation, but it, at times uh, they do kick him out of Oxford because the, the Pope's writing to him, and he, similar to Luther, is just kind of throwing the stuff to the wind. I've rejected your authority. Who are you but a man is his attitude. And that the Pope is no, there's no, he's saying there is no authority higher than the word of God. And he says, and we are all under this word, that the word, the, 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 the revealed 
word of God stands above us where it rules us and we all find ourselves under there. Now, as he rejects papal authority, he does recognize that there is authority in the offices. And so he's just really saying that you do not have ultimate authority. He's not, he's not saying that, you, you know, simply, but he does recognize that, well, you, you oversee, um, you know, churches, uh, there, there, there is that, but you don't have the right to say what is and isn't doctrine. The word of God determines that. You don't have the right to throw people into prison. You have stepped into the responsibilities of government. And so he dies, but his writings live on. You know what it says in Hebrews concerning Abel? Right? Uh, he died in faith, but, but though he died, he still speaks. In Hebrews 11, concerning Abel, he still speaks after his death. How is that? Because his legacy lives on. And in many ways, in most ways, Wycliffe was influential in his life, but in his death and the continuing years afterwards, he becomes even more influential. Influential. Though he died, he continued to speak because his writings lived on. Now his writings become officially banned by the church. If you had, if you had, if you had the writings of John Wycliffe, you were an enemy of the church state. You are a dangerous person. He is deemed a heretic. If you would look on a Catholic website, he is the heretic of heretics. He is the first of many. He is that. He is that evil. Uh, used of Satan, as it were, as they would say, man, because all the dominoes begin to fall with him. If it wasn't, if it wasn't for Wycliffe, we wouldn't have had Hoos. And if we wouldn't have had Hoos, we wouldn't have Luther. And we wouldn't be in the place that we're in today. And so Wycliffe is looked at as the chief forerunner of this great heresy. And we look at him and we say he is a champion. He is a champion of orthodoxy. He is like Athanasius. And so, after his death, the church, because they couldn't kill him, they condemned him as a heretic, they dug up his remains, they burned them, and they cast them into a river called Swift. There is great irony here, because they thought, this is what we're going to do with Wycliffe. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to, he's going to be forgotten. We're going to dig him up. We're going to destroy where anyone would ever know that he was. We're going to burn his ashes. We're going to throw him out. And he will be a forgotten person in history. The irony is they throw his ashes into the river Swift, which flows into a larger river, which flows into the Atlantic and it spreads. And so Wycliffe spreads throughout the globe. We are here right now because we stand on his shoulders and we are thankful for his ministry. Did he get everything right? No, no, he didn't. He didn't, he didn't, he wasn't one that uh, understood, you know, autonomy of the local church or anything like that. But we have to understand, and this is where we take C.S. Lewis's statement. We do not want to be guilty of what we call chronological snobbery. And what I mean by that, and what Lewis meant by that, is that we have the tendency to look back on history and think, well, you should have done this. Oh, Peter, if I were you, I wouldn't have been scared of a little girl. But we have to understand that these are real people at real times, in real places, facing real struggles. And there will be times that in our life that people maybe could look back on our history and think, well, why didn't you do it like that? 
And so we are thankful for him. We wouldn't have agreed with all of his doctrinal stances at all. But nonetheless, on the essential things that mattered, John Wycliffe was a champion for the cause that was beginning to unfold. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that is most likely a true statement. Um, here's a couple uh, just sayings from, from Wycliffe that he would say. He'd say, quote, The church of Rome is not the head of all churches, nor did Peter have any more power given to him by Christ than to the other apostles. He understood the equality of the apostles. Though Peter is, you know, more or less, there's always one in the bunch, right? There's always that guy that, you know, talks a lot or puts himself, you know, not necessarily because, you know, it's a pride thing, but, you know, he, he, he was the assertive one. He also wrote, all rules that are made to govern religious people add no more perfection to the gospel of Jesus Christ than does white color to a wall. Neither the Pope nor any other prelate should have prisons on which to punish transgressors. The Pope has no more keys of the church than does any other in the priesthood. Let me, I didn't emphasize this, but he understood the priesthood of all believers and that we are the people of God. He says the gospel by itself is a rule sufficient to the rule the life, to rule the life of every Christian person on earth without any other rule. He was a gospel man. He saw the sufficiency of the gospel. He saw his identity in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of his greatest writings, it was called the Triagalos. He says this, quote, It lays down the principle that where the Bible and the church do not agree, we must obey the Bible. That continues today. Where the Bible and the church do not agree, we must obey the Bible. And this is what it means to be reforming, is that we are constantly looking at the word of God and bringing ourselves subjective. Uh, And this was the battle cry of the reformers, semper reformanda, always reforming, is that we bring our lives, we bring our practices, we bring everything that we do under the authority of the word. And we say, is this biblical? And there are areas in my life, and there are areas in your life that are not biblical. This is why we are growing in our sanctification. So we are always wanting to reform ourselves under and through the word of God. And so those are just some of Wycliffe's sayings. He was a gospel man. He saw the beauty of Christ and the sufficiency of the gospel. All right. This is very important. Here's another domino that starts to fall. The Great Schism. Do we know about this? Do we remember from our, our, our world history classes? Did you pick up the book in 1311 and read it? Well, they didn't have it at this time, I guess. Uh, but the Great Schism. Do we know what it is? Well, we will. In 1309, 
Pope Clement V is established at the seat of the papacy. Well, the papacy is in Rome. Well, it moves now. This is a big deal. It's no longer in the Vatican. The seat of the papacy goes to France. You think, well, what's the big deal? It's a big deal. It's a big deal to move the, the, the seat of... Listen, the Pope is the most powerful person at this time in the world. He is more powerful than emperors and kings. And so the seat moves out of Italy and over to France. And what is known as the Babylonian captivity of the church. This lasts roughly like the Babylonian captivity of Israel, which lasts around 70 years. Um, this, this time where the seat is not in Rome, but over in France. Well, I guess you guys are looking at me the other way. So from this way to this way, because it moves west. Um, there's, this, there's this, this lamenting, as it were. Okay, so things get a little... Shaky now. Uh, this man, uh, Bartholomew Prigonano, uh, I, I prefer Urban VI, which is a little easier to say. Um, he is elected Pope in 1378. Now remember, here's the timeline. Wycliffe has got roughly six more years left in his life. Uh, he begins his translation work in uh, 80. So you know this is going on up in uh, England, and this great schism is beginning. And this is very important to understand because this causes a lot of people to become uh, disenfranchised and really question authority. Remember, the questioning of papal authority is what starts to, you know, that's what lit the match with Wycliffe, and that's what sets ablaze um, 150 years or so later. Okay, so Bartholomew is elected pope in 78 now, um, also this year, Robert of Geneva, or Clement VII, is elected Pope in 1378. Do you know what's happening here? There are two popes. There are two popes, and this is why it's called the Great Schism. In 1309 begins the, the Avignon papacy. This is where it moves to France. There are seven popes that sit in France for 70 years. Gregory XI returned to Rome in 1377, but in his return to Rome, it was such a strenuous journey for him. He dies in 78. The, the seat of the pope is reestablished in Rome, though. And so the question becomes, when Gregory dies, who do we elect as Pope? Well, if we elect a, a, a Frenchman, he's going back to France. We need, we need a Roman. We need somebody from Rome. We need to elect a cardinal from Rome so that we can establish the seat here. And so let's, let's pick a Roman. Well, I couldn't get a Roman. So at least they got an Italian. If you don't understand, uh, Prigonano is, he's from Federal Hill, right? He's, he's an Italian. Um, so, they, they, so they pick him as an Italian, and he takes the name Urban VI. But Urban VI was a proud and very harsh man, and they regretted their decision from the very beginning. Within six months, the, 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 the attitude among the cardinals is that we need to avoid his election as pope. 
He actually needs to be voided because we were forced. We felt, we felt compelled. We felt under pressure. So it wasn't a free election. Uh, it was not made freely. We did it under fear. And so you know what? They called Urban an apostate. They called him the Antichrist. He was known as the destroyer of Christianity. This was in his first six months of being a pope. <laughs> I'd want to quit. So on September 20th, 1378, five months, six months after Urban, Robert of Geneva was elected, and he took the name Clement. So now you've got two. And the great schism occurs. One in Rome, but since the seat was filled there by Urban VI, as he sat in the seat at Rome, where do you think Clement went? He went back to France. And so now you've got two popes, one in France, one in Rome, and they don't like each other. And so they, well, I'm going to excommunicate you. Well, I'm going to excommunicate you. And they do this little tit-for-tat thing. And they both write these things against each other. They both, they both have been mutually excommunicated from the same church that they both are fighting for power. And this is just a mess. This is a mess going on. It's like two children that are just fighting over a toy. And so uh, they become rival popes. What's really going on here? It's not about a great schism. There's something bigger going on here. Before I get to that, though, let's just, they mutually excommunicate each other. And so in 1409, because this goes on for a period of time, in 1409, there's a council of, 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 of Pisa, which is, created. And their idea is we're going to end this great schism. And so you know what? We're going to say both of you angry children are, 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 are no longer um, fit to be pope. You've excommunicated yourself. So let's say it double cancels and you're both gone. So we're going to elect Alexander V. And he's going to be the rightful pope. Well, neither Clement nor Urban recognize the council. And so the council creates a third pope. And so now there are three popes that are saying, I am the successor of Peter. I am, the keys have been given to me. I hold the authority of the church. And Urban's saying, no, I hold the authority of the church. And then Clement's saying, no, 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 it's, it's, it's for me. I, it's been given to me. I'm the rightful succession. I am, have come in the line of the apostle. So you have a mess going on. And so people that were thinking, well, the supreme authority of the pope who? Which one do I follow? If this guy has excommunicated this guy, and I'm not, and he's not allowed to take communion now because he is excommunicated and barred from the table taking communion, should I listen to him? But he's been excommunicated too. Well, what about Alexander? This lasted until 1417. Pope came, Pope gone, Pope came, Pope gone. And so finally, the Council of Constance. The Council of Constance is called in 1414 to resolve this issue. It had certain object, uh, objectives, and we are not going to get to uh, John Hus uh, today, which is totally fine. But the Council of Constance has to deal with stopping or healing the schism because this, this hurts. This hurts badly. This kills the doctrine of papal authority if there's three of them. 
Who has the rightful authority? And so this is just like the, the Catholic Church is bleeding, and it can't stop the bleeding right now. Their, their, their system is imploding. There's also a Bohemian revolt led by John Hus. And, there's, and the third reason for this Council of Constance is to reform abuses. Ultimately, though, this is what we need to consider. What was going on with the Great Schism? And the question that was underlying everything was one of authority. Where does authority lie? Where does authority lie? So there are three views, and we'll finish on these three views. There is curialism, which believes that absolute authority is found in the Pope. Certainly, Clement, Urban, Alexander, they say, yeah, 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 this is what we believe. But at the same time, another movement was rising up, conciliarism, which means the councils, that the authority lies in the councils, because the councils are what appoint, are, uh, 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 appoint or elect the pope. So now there's these two views that are going on. Does the authority lie in the pope, or does the authority lie in the councils that elect the pope? Think about this. What does Luther say? That popes and councils have erred? So, so what we've got going on here is this power struggle. And this is, this is the heart of, of, of what is happening in the 15th century. There is a power struggle. And so the Council of Constance says the, the power's in the council. The pope that they elect says, yes, it is. The power's in the council. And so they elect him. And then what does he do? After he's elected, he says, no, no, no powers in the papacy. And he turns on the council. But at, underneath all of this right now, this great schism that is going on, and people seeing this and they're saying, what is going on? Where do I follow? Who do, to the common man is hearing this. You know, the, 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 the uneducated, and they're thinking, what's going on here? Yes, sir. Uh, cardinals, yeah, men, men, cardinals, uh, over uh, uh, people that are in authority positions in the church. Um, and so they would convene the council. But that's the question. Who calls the council? Well, this is where the pope calls the council. And so uh, in this sense, even, even in uh, the Council of Constance, it was called by the pope. But underneath all of this that's going on right now, the rumblings are beginning to strengthen. It is like the tremors before an earthquake because there's another view that's beginning to pick up and that is sola scriptura. And that is that authority does not lie in the council. Authority does not lie in the papacy. The authority lies in the word. And so this is championed by Wycliffe. Wycliffe's spreading, uh, writings are spreading. They're secretly smuggled in to what is the modern-day Czech Republic. And as we will see next week, this loud-mouthed, fiery bohemian gets the writings of John Wycliffe, and they change his life. He is known as the goose, 
John Hus. And Sola Scriptura is just beginning to, 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 to almost think about uh, a storm. The, cloud, the clouds just come in. They're dark. You've got the rumblings of thunder and lightning. The rain's coming down. And think about that moment as the rains begin to stop and the storm has come and the sun begins to just break through the cloudy skies. The rainbow starts to appear, right? And you see that ray of sun coming through. This is what's happening. This is what's unfolding right now is that sola scriptura, the authority of the word of God is breaking through the dark clouds. And it is, it is beginning with Wyclef and Hus, but 1517, when the 95 theses are nailed, the storm has broken open and the world is forever changed. But we're getting there. And so uh, that's what we have time for today. Um, I lied to you about 10 o'clock. Forgive me. It is... 10:10. I did not know I'd get his carried away, but here is Jan Hus, and we will consider him and Luther uh, as we consider the beginnings of the Reformation next week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the things of old, the, the, the history, Lord, and that we can learn from the past, apply it in the present, and live with hope in the future. So, Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of uh, the men that you have raised up and to be lone voices at times. Father, I pray you'd give us the boldness and the courage and the faithfulness of John Wycliffe, Lord, to uh, see that all that you've commanded us is to be found in your scriptures and we are to live by the book. So help us to uh, follow in these ways faithfully and for the honor of Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.